Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, Jessica Pfeiffer here and welcome to episode four of Education Suspended. Listen, I recognize that all of our listeners are extremely busy. It would really mean a lot um, if you took a moment to subscribe to Education Suspended on whatever platform you listen. Uh, helps us spread the word, get it out there to other teachers, and that's what we're looking to do. We are honored by uh, just the great support we've had, we have had thus far. So yeah, again, take a moment, subscribe, Education Suspended, thank you so much. We have an excellent interview today uh, with Dr. Adrian Kennedy where we really dive into several things. Um, and I don't want to give the whole episode away, but there were really like two major things that stood out for me. The first thing is that Dr. Kennedy does a really good job of framing and just reminding us that the family is the child's first teacher. And we really need to take that into consideration as we think about uh, what type of school to family partnerships do we need to create? And not just create, but why? Like, why are they so important? And I love that uh, reminder. I also really liked how she brings up and highlights just this, this overarching reality that systems of oppression, which, which education can become if we're not careful, um, but that systems of oppression are designed specifically in a ways that, that take away essentially our ability to feel, that they do not want us to feel. Um, and that, that just is so important to think about, um, especially as we talk about how do we change? How do we step away from that? Uh, we all know, I think, and, and would agree that education can be such a key to freedom, right? Such a, such a key to actually helping others feel and recognize who they are. So we really need to take accountability for what does that mean in the systems that we work in. So sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Dr. Adrian Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy, welcome to Education Suspended. It's awesome to have you here and we're grateful that you're giving us your time. We know you're really busy. Um, we start out all our podcasts the same. If you would just uh, introduce yourself to our community, kind of what you do, how you got there. And even if you, you don't have to, but if you want to reflect a little bit on your own experience as a student, and if there are any elements that influenced kind of, again, where you are now today. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, again, I am Dr. Adrian Kennedy, and I work as a lead partner for an educational consulting firm. And my job is to partner with education leaders all across the country to integrate into their practices, policies, and cultures of focus on what we call whole child development through a trauma-informed, anti-racist, equitable, and culturally responsive and inclusive lens. And our goal really is to help our partners create educational environments where all children, and especially children from underserved populations can thrive. And I'll say what really inspired me to do this work in education is 
I'd say I've always worked with uh, in my career with children who have been vulnerable. Um, to date, the bulk of my career has been with children and families in the foster care system. Um, that's where I spent most of my career. And it's been rewarding work, but it's also been very heartbreaking work. Um, I would get kids into uh, care and I would spend lots of time and energy working to get them stabilized in a foster home. And then they would go off to school and things would seem to just fall apart. They would get in trouble and they get suspended and sometimes they would get expelled. And sometimes that would mean that they would lose their placement and they'd have to move. And that would be a detrimental outcome in that moment and sometimes later on for them um, in, the, in the future, it would be detrimental. And so that inspired me to want to go into the schools to help teachers and to help administrators better understand the impact of trauma on the development, on the behavior and the learning of children and to figure out ways to better support students who have experienced trauma. I like that. And I like the, the, the whole child developmental lens. That's, I love how you said that. Are there aspects of that? How do I want to say this? Are there aspects of that whole child lens that may, maybe are harder for those in education to kind of get on board with than others? Or is it equal investment? You know, I think that there are a lot of different aspects to the whole child framework. There are, it's really about coming together and looking at how do we support the development of the entire child. It's not just the academic piece, but it's what is going on with the child in the home what is happening with them in the community, and what can we do to support this child development as a whole. Um, it's about not just what's happening in their classroom. It's about what can we, how can we bring in supports from the community? How can we help them find um, how can we be culturally responsive? How can we look at the aspects in their community that are supporting what's, uh, what's uh, really supportive for their uh, success outside of the classroom? So it's really about helping them to be successful inside the classroom and outside of the classroom and looking at all of their needs, physical, mental health, safety, and it's really that whole child framework that provides a blueprint to giving them the foundation for meeting all of their needs. You know, I, I have been marveled at your work in the past where you provided this whole child services. How, how, uh, how hard is that to organize? And, and what, what are some, some, some of the steps when, when you take it to those lengths? And, and I honestly, I, I've been so impressed with how you, you and, and other people you've been associated with have been able to do that. Can you just give us a little idea of stair-step that a little bit? Of all of the different steps, looking at the whole child framework, you know, there's a lot of different parts to it. And 
it's not just one piece that you want to look at. It's about the harmonious support that a whole child approach that we really want to look at. It's looking at the the district and the the school community and supporting the needs of the child. It's really a comprehensive approach mm-hmm. and the um, the district broadening their approach to how they support the child. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, I, and I just, I don't want to interrupt you, but harmonious support. Oh, that was, yeah. wow. I we'll like grab that one. I have taken that one. Thank you very much. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Because it's really about community partnerships and thinking about, you know, not just academics, but it's about the physical and uh, physical education. It's about health education, social, emotional learning. It's about um, school and nutrition. It's about health services. It's about um, behavioral services, family engagement. It's also about community engagement. And it's also about staff wellness and self-care. So how are we helping the staff to take care of themselves? It's also about um, school and climate and culture. So how are we creating uh, an environment in the school that is conducive to whole child development? What are the physical, what's the physical environment in the school? Um, Also, it's about school safety. How are we creating an environment in the school that is conducive to whole child development? And it's also about how are we supporting the family? Um, You know, the family is the school, is the child's first teacher. So how are we partnering with the family to um, support them, to Um, address whatever needs that the family may have? How are we partnering with the family? And then also, how are we creating those community partners to really create a wraparound service that we can wrap around the family, we can create um, community partnerships, and really come around that family to help children get all of the supports that they really need for their total development. Yeah, I'd love to spend some time on that on that family piece. Um, and just kind of you personally and your own experience in this work. When we think about education from a systems lens, what are some of the things that we need to think about adjusting to do better at, at And I want to say family engagement, but I think it's actually deeper than that, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's just um, a cultural and equitable lens that just needs to shift. But what do we need to do better to to reach families in education? Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, I'm just curious. You know, in my opinion, I think that we need to really partner better with families. I think that we need to have the respect for families that there are the te- the child's first teachers and that we need to have that respect for the families that they are really that first teacher and what can we do to support them? Um, there are families, some of them really need that support. And so 
what can we do as a school community to provide that support? You know, I think that we schools can go a long way if they take the time and make the investments to build those relationships with families, to be non-judgmental, um, to be trauma-informed. I think that, you know, schools can go a long way if they take into account the experiences that some families may have had with schools. Um, Some families may not have had the best experiences with schools. And so there may be some bridges that need to be built. There may be some relationships that need to be repaired. We need to really try to create a safe space with families so that they feel comfortable letting us know what their needs are. And if we can do that, I think that they'll feel safe opening up and letting us know what some of the needs are so that we can help meet those needs. Yeah, I, I love that you talked about that generational piece. And as a fellow social worker, also, we were just we were laughing before, of like, you know, you have your doctorate in social work, but up until this point, it's been in psychology. And mm-hmm. I'm almost doing the opposite, right? Up until this point, it's been all social work. And now I'm dipping into psychology. But in social work, we talk a lot about kind of a genogram, right? Of like, what's the history mm-hmm. of the family? And we visually see that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wish that we did that more. An education of get a visual representation for what's the experience in education and and mm-hmm. beyond you know the primary caregivers what is it like for the extended family what is it like in the, in the neighborhood that they go to yes i think it's important also to have that historical lens where um, we have an understanding of what has been the historical um experience of a community um, when they have tried to access education. You know, I've I've done um, what's called a uh, trauma-informed biographical timeline with an mm. educational lens. And what I did with that was map how African-Americans in particular, um, looking at um, the history of education from when it was illegal for Black people in America to learn how to read all the way up until the school to prison pipeline and looking at some of the traumas that African-Americans have experienced while trying to access education. And that I think is a critical understanding that educators need to understand for um, for us to to really understand that this history happened. And so it's not that, you know, Black people don't care about education. It's that there's been some trauma that's happened. And we need to understand that through that lens so that we can counter some of these inequities that have been put in place so that we can get more equitable outcomes. And what was that process called, that mapping process? Yes, it's called a trauma-informed biographical timeline. Well, I want to jump into that for like yeah, eight hours. Too, too, bad we can't, too bad we can't put that on the screen. Like oh. to see it. Now, is this, can you go a little bit more into that? Was it, I mean, obviously you talked about it from the, from the context of um, the, the Black experience in education. Mm-hmm. Um is this something that you did kind of just kind of on your own to explore that? Or is this part of your social work program? Where did that come from? 
I've learned about this process through a colleague of mine. Her name is Sarah Buffy with Sober Consulting. And she actually came to do a presentation with us. And this is a process that is used quite frequently with individuals who have um, developmental disabilities, or uh, we've even done it with individuals who were in um, foster care. Um, that's when I was originally exposed to this process. Um, but as I was listening to her demonstrate the process in this training, I thought about how we could use this with a systemic perspective. And so I started to play around with this process and um, came up with this um, tweak to the process, doing it with this systemic lens. So it's an adaptation that I came up with to this process. And that's how I came up with it. I love it. That's mm -hmm. beyond fascinating. It's the systemic lens to yeah, a genogram. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, were, were there things for you, and I don't want to get too personal, but you know, I, you, you looked into the, the, the Black student experience. Were there things for you as a Black woman that um, maybe you even discovered that you weren't aware about when you were a student, right? That you didn't even understand how is the system influencing you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, going through the education system, I will say, you know, I was a a uh, compliant student. I never was suspended. Um, I will say I only got uh, detention one time my entire school experience, but that doesn't mean that I made it through that system without any kind of trauma. I can remember specifically when I was in the sixth grade um, going to a parent-teacher conference and my sixth grade teacher telling my mother that I was lazy. And I can remember that sticking with me for a long time. And even as a college student, having that play back in my mind, and even as a, a doctoral student trying to prove that I was not L-A-Z-Y, as my sixth grade teacher told my mother. And so, yeah, I can vividly remember that experience. So I can relate that directly to the um, the experiences of the, the timeline that I was able to map. And even though it was it paled in comparison to a lot of the blatant violence and trauma that a lot of um, people experienced as they tried to access education in America. But even though some of us experienced it, it's a continuum and some was more blatant and violent than others. Like I said it, at the beginning, even though I didn't experience that, it, I still didn't escape without some kind of trauma. Yeah. Well, and I don't know how to say this because I don't want it to sound negative. I think it's easy to focus on the external traumas that our students of color face, right? More of the, for example, last, was it, was it last week or the week before kind of on the news, right? That, um, that black student in a high school kind of thrown on the ground that we all saw on television, right? And of course, everyone is gonna see that and, and most of us are filled with rage. But I think what sticks out about your story is that you actually use the word compliant. Right? Like I, I find myself becoming a compliant student. And it's actually those stories of trauma from our students of color that we never hear about. 
Mm-hmm. And to some degree, I think that, yeah. you know, until you're an adult, so that you maybe didn't even recognize the influence of that because compliance in itself is actually somehow uh, that became a technique for you in school, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, if you're not going to be a, a student of color that's out there creating, and I'm quoting now, trouble, um, you just, I don't want to say zone out, but you just smile and nod all mm-hmm. your way through. And that mm-hmm. that also is a silence of one's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, you aren't thrown to the ground. It's almost worse because no one's noticing and recognizing the silence that is being taken. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. And compliance doesn't equal engaged. Yeah. And I would say that I was not necessarily a very engaged student. I was compliant and I was not in trouble, but I wasn't a very engaged student. Compliance doesn't equal engaged. Awesome. Go ahead, Grainer. Well, I just wondered when when that changed. I'm still on your story, Dr. Kennedy. When when did that shift happen for you? And and Mm -hmm. what might have caused it or what might have helped it or whatever? I'm just listening. But You know, I think what really changed for me was when I got out of high school and I was able to kind of explore learning more on my own. Um, I was able to learn in a way that felt more comfortable for me, in a way that was less prescriptive and really was able to discover a love for learning. I didn't know that I loved to learn until after I got out of high school. And that was because I was able to learn in a way that felt more comfortable for me that was less prescriptive. Was that right on your under, your first undergrad experience? Did, was mm-hmm. where, wherever, you know, and I think it was Tennessee State. I'm not 100% yeah. sure. I, I think it was yes. Tennessee State. What, what did yes. they do that was that helped well, bring about the magic? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I think a big part of it, uh, Tennessee State is a HBCU. It's a historically um, Black college. And I had teachers who looked like me. Uh, And I was surrounded by students who looked like me. Um, I went to a high school that was an excellent high school, one of the top 100 high schools in the country. But the teachers didn't look like me and neither did the students. And so it felt very, um, I felt very disconnected. But when I was able to go to Tennessee State, I felt like I was able to compete. But um, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I had to, I didn't feel less than. I felt like uh, I was able to bring my full self to the classroom and I was able to express my full self and I could show up and be exactly who I was and it was celebrated every day and I saw myself reflected in the teachers in the curriculum in the students I met people who wanted to be um all kinds of um, different careers and it was fascinating and I was able to thrive in that environment Oh, thank you. I, I love that. Yeah. It's... And and I mean, that parallel experience, right? Of like you were at a time in your life that you could, I think you said, be your whole self. Yeah. Right. And then now mm-hmm. here you are working with schools to help bring a, a whole child lens. Mm-hmm. It, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't shock me because you have the experience of what it's like to be in education when that's not mm-hmm. what you're given and then mm-hmm. know what it does feel like when you're given that. Yes, absolutely. 
Now, in your in, oh, go ahead, one more one more Tennessee State question because it just yeah. ask what um, kinds of study or literature or background or what what helped you even even yourself gain a a, a more expansive historical cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing a lot of that might have happened at Tennessee State. I just would like to, to some, expand on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Tennessee State is, it's a place, like I said, it's historically Black college. And so there was an, an expectation that we, first of all, that we would um, take the education that we were given at Tennessee State and we would use it to um, go back and uplift the community. So we were expected not just to um, better ourselves, but to better our community. And so I got that sense of responsibility mm. there at um, TSU. And that has always stayed with me. Um, and again, just being exposed to so many people of color who wanted to be doctors, lawyers, pilots, engineers, nurses, educators, um, so many different um, career paths that I just had not been exposed to. So anything and everything became possible um, for me, not just and not just in a book or not just some faraway place, but right here in front of me. And I've been so appreciative of that because now in my own personal life, I know so many people who look like me who do all different kinds of things. And so that has been um, life changing for me. Yeah. yeah, you, 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 and I don't want to put words in your mouth. What I hear you saying a little bit is that you, you have this sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what we know is that that sense of belonging kind of creates that safe educational experience for one to really jump into the cycle of learning, right? Once you feel that you belong, that there's a space for you, you can actually move into curiosity. And, and, and I think we easily forget that curiosity is a privilege. Right. We have yes. kids that come to school that are not for whatever reason, um, on, on unfortunately, oftentimes at the at the detriment of the school. Right. Because of the systems lens aren't able to be curious and engage in that learning process. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Curiosity is a privilege. Yes, it is. It is. Yes. Uh, I'm a big I'm a big believer in that because we just we take it for granted. And if you are able to have it, you don't really think twice right? And mm -hmm. if you're working with students that don't have it, you look to what's wrong with this kid versus the why, right? Um, so yes. it, I want to go back to this theme of kind of this role that you have with schools, because you've been doing this for a long time. And, and the premise of education suspended, right, is that we kind of have this belief that the status quo is not working, right? This, mm -hmm. this system is, is very archaic. Are there things in your experience with systems that you kind of see as kind of the most pressing issues of like, this is just not working. We have got to bring something new to the table. Um, mm -hmm. And what, what would that be? What would some of those issues or problems be? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, going back to um, the thing that kind of inspired me to start my work in schools, like I said, with kids in foster care being suspended and how detrimental that would be to their um, safety and outcomes is 
What I see is out-of-school suspensions and the school-to-prison pipeline. I really see that as being the most pressing issue in education right now. I really see the, it's just the alarming rate that African-American students in particular are being suspended from school is really a critical factor in pushing students out of the school system and into the criminal justice system. And my challenge as an activist, social worker, is to work for equal opportunity and justice. And an important aspect of this challenge for me is personally to work towards improving the academic success of historically marginalized students, particularly African-American students. You know, I've done extensive research on this topic, and what I found is that about 15%, just over 15% of our public high school students are African-American, but they make up almost 40% of all students who are suspended in a school year. And that's an over-representation of over 23%. And if we break it down by gender, Black girls are suspended more than every other racial group of girls. And, you know, I know that some people may say that, well, Black students are suspended more because they have more behavioral problems, but the research just does not support that. What I found is that, you know, Black students tend to be suspended more for subjective types of behavioral infractions, like insubordination or disrespect or causing a disruption, while white students tend to be suspended for um, behavioral um, issues like um, vandalism, fighting, or theft, things that are a lot more objective. So I really see the practice of pushing students out of school into the criminal justice system is how the school to prison pipeline begins. And the classroom is really the best place to avoid it. And so in my opinion, um, equal opportunity and justice, we can't disentangle that from the imperative to increase the access to um, really equal, equitable educational outcomes. And we have to eliminate this disproportionality in discipline in high school graduation and college readiness. Yeah, it's... You just said something that sparked kind of, you know, the ACEs study that came out years ago. And, you know, interestingly enough, right, so what they were looking at in that study was, uh, you know, what are the health ramifications um, for those that have experienced adversity in childhood? And and if you don't know what this is, you should look it up. Um, But they found it to be pretty impactful, right? I think people were mm-hmm. actually shocked. This, and this was over, what, 20 plus years ago now. Mm-hmm. And and to your point, what the initial reaction of those hearing it was, oh, well, it, it's because of choices that they're making, mm-hmm. that they're becoming, that they're having health issues. They're, mm-hmm. they're choosing to smoke. Mm-hmm. They're choosing to do, uh, to, to eat unhealthy food, you know, and this is just an example. And it it just very much parallels for what I just heard you say, or parallels for what I just heard you say of like, mm-hmm. there is a systemic, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to assume, it seems as though there's a systemic belief of like, oh, well, these black students are choosing to be oppositional. Mm-hmm. They're choosing to be 
um, defiance. Um, but I, it's very systemic. Absolutely. And, and again, if, if, uh, I mean, just to reflect on your experience, right. If, if they don't just sit there and comply and dissociate, mm-hmm. the system's gonna, gonna kind of latch onto them. And it's, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, and there's a system set up that from suspensions all the way to the criminal justice system, because there's a direct correlation between the amount of suspensions that a student experiences and the likelihood that they will have contact with the criminal justice system. Yeah. All right. Now we, you've defined the issue very well. Now help us, help us classroom teachers Mm -hmm. take the practical first steps towards improving this system. Mm -hmm. I'd love love to hear some just first step ideas. What what, what are some of the things, Mm -hmm. and and maybe even in some schools you're working with right now, Mm -hmm. and you might even include what hurdles are always there to get over, but Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's drill it down to some practical side of this for educators listening to say, well, what can I do? Well, you know, I think that's a loaded question because there's so much work to do on so many levels, but I will say that the first thing that we can always start with is ourselves. And the first thing that we can do is really get in touch with our own emotions. And it seems like such a small and insignificant thing to invite and accept our own emotions, but truthfully, systems of oppression don't want us to feel. And they want us divorced from our emotions. So when we can acknowledge and accept our emotions, we can start to tear down those oppressive systems. So that's the first thing. Yeah, that's powerful. But keep going. Mm -hmm. Okay. I will. <laughs> I also think <laughs> I think that educators would greatly benefit from coaching, training, and technical assistance that incorporates neuroscience, equity-oriented SEL or social emotional learning, and culturally responsive practices. I think that teachers and education leaders need to increase their capacity to identify and counter inequities. Also to create safe learning environments that are trauma responsive, that strengthen SEL strength uh, skills, and also that tap into the strengths and opportunities and the brilliance that African-American students bring into their classrooms. I think that educators need equity-focused professional learning opportunities where they learn to analyze those root causes of inequity critically, like we talked about earlier. And they need to be challenged to reflect on their thoughts and behaviors and how they're shaped by implicit bias, how they're shaped by privilege and discrimination and power and empowerment and self-determination and social justice. I think that educators should also learn to develop the social and emotional skills that are needed to talk about race. I also need, they also need to learn the skills to regulate their behaviors in the classroom and to build healthy, respectful relationships with students that are rooted in an appreciation for their similarities and for their differences. 
And I also think that we need to increase educators' capacity to embed culturally responsive, trauma-informed practices that nurture those collaborative solutions to school, community, and societal problems. And I have to say, I really do think that we could do a better job of preparing teachers Mm -hmm. for the classroom overall. Um, One of the problems related to this issue is the lack of efficacy that many teachers who happen to be white, I just have to name that, have with cultivating relationships and managing classrooms in urban settings. And this is partly because pre-service teachers aren't exposed to the cultural assets of students of color. And they're also not exposed to evidence-based strategies to effectively manage classrooms in urban settings. And so this in turn produces a steady flow of ill-prepared teachers into classrooms of urban schools. And I just want to name that, and that's that I just want to name that not preparing teachers to effectively teach all students is a racist practice that is integral to the race-based system of white supremacy. And that's not to blame white teachers, but rather acknowledge that racism is a political system that creates structural inequities in all areas, including education. And the data, when we look at that, it shows that students of color are more likely to have inexperienced teachers. Um, About 11% of Black students attend schools where more than one in five teachers are on their first year of the job compared to 5% of white students and 4% of Asian students. So I believe that if we are to close the opportunity gaps between white and black Mm -hmm. students, we have to focus on better preparing new teachers and figuring out ways to get more experienced teachers in front of black and brown students. I also, also, if I could, I I just want to take a moment and say, okay, okay. Okay. Keep, keep preaching, sister. Okay. Keep bringing, All right. Bringing. All right. I also will say that I think in addition to identifying and countering implicit bias, many of our teachers need to actively work on their self-regulation skills. I've been in many classrooms and I've witnessed many um, white teachers display subtle nonverbal expressions of anxiety and discomfort or really exaggerated or what looks like disingenuous positivity. And these nonverbal cues of anxiety or um, discomfort really suggest that these teachers are experiencing some stress or anxiety and dysregulation in the classroom. And I've also looked at the research around this and it's shown that these subtle expressions of anxiety have a negative effect on African-American students during these interracial interactions. And the research has shown that when Black students are chronically engaged with stressed teachers and um, are particularly attuned to these cues of stress, that they in turn experience elevated levels of stress as well. And so we know what this is, it's co-dysregulation. So if their teacher is stressed, they're going to be stressed. And so it's just a negative cycle that's happening. So we need our white teachers to be better regulated in the classroom. 
Yeah. And so, so I'm all, I'm going to wrap this up. Okay. No, you don't have to. <laughs> Dr. Kennedy, you just go. Okay. Jamie says so, you have 15 minutes. You can keep going. Yeah. I think we might have less, but I just got so caught up in this that I forgot no, to check matter. the time. So we're just going to keep rolling. Yeah. Okay. okay. So just in, so in closing, I just want to say, you know, I, I am a proponent of trauma-informed care, and you all know that. And trauma-informed care takes steps towards helping educators to understand the neurosequential brain development and the impact that trauma and to toxic stress has on learning, yeah, yeah. and that's great. But what I am proposing is that we take trauma-informed cares in schools a step further by also helping educators to recognize the impact of racial trauma in schools and the role that teachers can play in either perpetuating and in dismantling white supremacy and the school to prison pipeline. I think that's where it's at. Teachers have to understand their role in identifying and countering inequities in the classroom. Yeah. Okay. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start talking because I just have to. So I think the first thing that really triggered me in a, in a positive way, and this actually literally happened this week in a class that I'm taking in my doctoral program, and poor Jamie was part of this and just witnessed this, uh, we got into the topic of evidence-based practices in education. Mm -hmm. And I went on a little bit of a tangent about the racial inequity and essentially racist um, experiences that that can bring to the table. Because oftentimes, mm -hmm. the, in my opinion, um, I believe that the, the um, evidence-based practices that we are teaching teachers, it's rooted in white culture, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so then this, this evidence is now building our, our systems in our MTSS, right? It's building mm -hmm. systems in our positive behavioral support interventions, right? Our PBIS, and we're mm -hmm. not even thinking twice. Mm -hmm. um, so I just love that that happened because that came up. And the other thing is this, you keep, you know, you keep talking about trauma. And I think what's really resonating for me is you're thinking and you're challenging everyone to go deeper than the typical uh, thought of what trauma can be. Abuse, neglect, right? These big things. Mm -hmm. um, what, when we know, and the research clearly shows that trauma, the, the, the daily traumas of being part of a marginalized group yes is just as or in my opinion sometimes often more impactful and i'm mm -hmm. not trying to discredit anyone's trauma history if you're listening to this if you're not part of a marginalized group mm -hmm. but that daily attack mm -hmm. on your sense of safety and your sense of belonging over and over and over those tiny those tiny blows, those tiny hits have massive ramifications. And we don't, we don't do a good enough job talking about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I, that's really what stood out about what, what you just said. Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. We need to absolutely recognize the trauma of being part of a marginalized group. Yeah. And um, it's, it's an impact. Yeah. And also the impact of being a part of um, not only marginalized group, but the um, 
of this the systematic oppression mm-hmm. that happens also. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, we're focusing a lot on, um, you know, students of color in particular, black students, but it's, if we step back, it's so much deeper than that, right? Mm-hmm. Our marginalized kids are the ones in, in different socioeconomic status groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our LGBT students, I mean, it, there's just mm-hmm. aspects of, of this influence on so many of our kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adrian, I would love, not that we need to put any kind of ra- a tiny cute bow on this discussion because we don't, but I would love to know a success story because you've been a great coach of educators. I know that over mm-hmm. s- several years. I would love to hear a, a few of the steps you took or, or whatever to, to create a, a success story with an educator who needed to get turned around a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I can tell you about a success story that I had with the school that I worked with uh, about two years ago. I worked with a middle school um, here in Columbus, Ohio, and um, there's still a work in progress, but I can tell you something that we did that went so absolutely well. I'm so proud of um, what we were able to accomplish. Um, we were working with... <laughs> a very stressed off staff and um, working in a community that was particularly, I would say marginalized, um, very high poverty, um, lots of um, stress in the community, um, lots of things going on um, in this community, lots of gang activity, lots of poverty, lots of homelessness, transient, uh, community. Um, this is a community very much in flux. And so, uh, and the staff was very much stressed as well. This is before the pandemic happened. And uh, we were looking for ways to help the students um, be more regulated in the classroom so that uh, more learning could happen, but also help the staff to um, be more regulated in the classroom as well, because there was just a lot going on in the classroom. And so what we were able to do, and with the leadership of the uh, the principal in the classroom, um, she was very, very much on board um, and provided the staffing for us to do this. Um, we were able to create what we called a regulation room. And so what we were able to do was dedicate a classroom in the building and in that room we were able to staff it with two full-time staff members and they were um, instructional aides and we were able to put in that room we had uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of things we had a a treadmill, we had um, bouncy balls, we had um, mandalas that students could come in and color, all kinds of things that, all kinds of regulation um, activities that they could come in. And of course, two people in there that they could come into. And so, yeah. And so what we were able to do in this room was if a student was having a 
a, a hard time in the classroom or they just needed a break, they were able to request just five minutes and the teacher would just put a little note on the door or make a phone call and the person in the regulation room would go down and just pick that student up, bring them back to the room, bring them into the room, talk with them, do a regulating activity with them, help build a skill uh, while they were in the room with them for a few minutes and then walk them calmly back to the classroom. And also, this was also available for the teacher as well. So if the teacher was having a a hard time and they needed a break, the, the person in the room, the instructional aide would go they were able to cover that teacher's classroom for a few minutes and the teacher could go to the room and take a break. They could take a walk on the treadmill and take a few minutes and regulate themselves for a few minutes and and have a break. And so it was really a powerful tool for us to use for the students and the staff just to build that skill. And it wasn't for some something for us to do all the time. It was just that little scaffold that they needed to build the skill until they could do it in the classroom where they wouldn't need to leave. But it was just something that we could do right there in the moment until they could do it on their own. And so I was really proud of the um, leadership of the principal and the cooperation of all of the staff to um, put that effort in to do that. And it worked really well. And so that's something that that really worked and that I was proud to be a part of. Yeah, that's, and I love the fact, you, you, you said it twice, build a skill. Mm-hmm. You, you suspend a child, there's no skill building that will ever happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, it maybe goes the other direction. Mm-hmm. But you go to a, a room like you're describing, which probably had a, even a name for it. I don't know if you guys had a name for the room or if it was just called the regulation room, doesn't matter. But that was a place for, to build a skill. That was mm-hmm. that was huge. It must mm-hmm. have had a great overall effect. It did. It absolutely did. And kids would want to go there. And it was a great alternative to suspension. Yeah. Well, I've heard of, I mean, you know, that the concept of having a regulating space. I mean, I'm not trying to discredit your story because of course everyone's trying to do that. But the fact that the leadership um, in partnership with you was able to say, we have to think beyond our students. Mm-hmm. We need a place for our teachers. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, you don't hear about that, of like the teacher having a, having a culture around them. They can say, hey, I, I'm actually, actually going to go use the space. Mm-hmm. I'm going to regulate. And to Steve, to your point, I'm going to model and teach that this is a safe place and you can do it too. You never, yes. you, you do not hear about that. I, I had yes. to laugh, you guys. I had, a, I had a vision of the dysregulated teacher and the dysregulated student walking together down to that room. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> Let the aid take over. You and I, we got to go get regulated. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Oh, um, I have so many more things, but I know that we kind of need to wrap up. Uh, Dr. Kennedy, I cannot thank you enough for your time. You are an inspiration. Um, the work yes, that you're you doing is, is beyond needed. Um, so thank you for, for giving us your valuable time and for teaching us and for, and for doing good work. Thank you so much. It's been an awesome experience being with you today.
Yeah, awesome. Oh, it's awesome having you. We knew it would be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much.